Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me again on the Janistine Podcast. I'm hearing such great feedback and appreciate your suggestions for future recipients of the Dean's List. And let me know your favorite interviews. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Janice Dean and Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Today's guest is someone I interviewed for a book that I'm working on coming out in January. Actually, this is the very first time I've ever talked about it on air. So that's exciting. The title of my book is called I Am the Storm. It's based on the quote, Fate whispers to the warrior, you cannot withstand the storm. The warrior whispers back, I am the storm. So powerful, right? I thought about those words a lot when I was advocating on behalf of my husband's parents who died from contracting COVID in their nursing homes. After that, I was bullied, belittled, and told to stop. Instead of deterring me, I found those attacks made me stronger and fueled a passion to keep going. It's a position I never imagined myself in, but while it was happening, I was finding other people doing similar things, battling giants despite the odds against them. One of the interviews I did for a chapter was with Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, who led a group of retired Green Berets to save a comrade and 500 other Afghans after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. It's one of the most heroic true stories I've ever heard. And Scott has written about it in his new book called Operation Pineapple Express. Scott, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Janice. We I talked to you last summer, right? Was it last summer? No, you know when it was? It was um, it was February. It I think it was February. Was our well? No, our it was last summer, but then we had another talk in February. Okay, pretty, pretty. That's right. Pretty in depth. And I've told the audience already that I'm working on a, a book of David and Goliath stories, and right. all of those chapters are about real people, real stories who go against something or something uh, that you know that is almost insurmountable. Mm. Like when you think about. Your journey. Um, I knew I had to talk to you because just those visuals of people grabbing onto the airplane, right. trying to get back to the U.S. freedom, and you saying, "I'm going to try to bring back as many of those allies as I can." Mm-hmm. That is, that's going against all odds, right? Really, right? Where do you think that came from? I, my mom and dad. You know, I'm, I always tell people that I'm Rex and Anita's son. That's just who I am. And, and they always, I was a really runt of a kid that moved around a lot. And they taught me that, you know, you can really play a bigger game if you lean into that. But I, I would also say that I learned it as a Green Beret. Mm. Being around these iconic special forces sergeants, you know, with the whole mission of special forces being to work with indigenous people. Right. So. You go in with 12, you come out with 1,200, like the movie 12 Strong, where, where just a handful of these operators go in, but yet they build relationships with thousands of people and mobilize them to stand up. That's where I really learned it. I mean, that's where I really started to hone it and believe it yeah. because I saw it over and over again where these little teams of Green Berets would go in and they would build trust when risk was low and then they would leverage it. And they would, they would get people to take action they otherwise wouldn't take. And it, to me, I just fell in love with that I, because it represents everything you're talking about. It represents that David and Goliath and what I think all of us are hungry for, to know that we can make an impact bigger than ourselves in these crazy times that we live in. It's true. 
Tell me about your service first. So I decided to become a Green Beret when I was 14. <laughs> I was in a, I grew up in a little logging town in Mount Ida, Arkansas. We moved around a lot, and I was a runt of a kid. And a Green Beret walked into our soda shop when I was 14. And as soon as I saw this guy, I, I was I said to myself, that, "That's what I'm going to do. That's me." You know, and I didn't even know what he did, but it was just the way he looked, the way he carried himself, um, just kind of sauntered in. And you know, he sat down and he and he started to talk to me about how. I asked him what he what he did, where was he from, and, and his name was Mark, and, and he told me how Green Berets have been around since really World War II, and they go into these places, and they build relationships, and they learn the language and the culture, but they're very, very tough, lethal, you know, surgically strong kind of people, and so, but yet they value culture and connection, and that was it for me. Like, I knew that's what I was going to do, and it never, ever changed, so when I got commissioned... Uh, as a lieutenant in the Army, I went in and uh, had to wait another five years, but ultimately became a Green Beret, spent the first 10 years of my career in Central and South America during the 90s, during the drug war, and then after 9-11, almost all of my career, either in Afghanistan as a Green Beret or getting ready to go back. And you say it was a, you know, a great uh, pleasure of yours to serve for the nation. Right. For sure. It was because, well, one, I was doing what I love to do. When, when I retired from the army. You know, I looked out at my wife, Monty, whose birthday is today, by the way. Happy birthday, Monty. And my three sons, right, who had grown up in this war and they'd never known anything but war. My, my three sons, they never knew anything but is dad going to come home, mm. you know? And on my, on the eve of my retirement or during my retirement ceremony, I looked out at him and I said, you know, thank you for letting me do what I've wanted to do since I was a kid, mm. you know? And, and so for me, it was, it almost wasn't like work, even losing friends and being deployed. It was, I loved the work so much and I loved the, the people mm -hmm. so much and the mission of just working with indigenous people, particularly the Afghans. They're such magnificent people. And that was the, really the highlight of my career was working with people like Nizam, who's in the book and, and, and uh, these others like, they're just their family. Yeah. Tell me about the book, Operation Pineapple Express. First of all, the title, for those that don't know, it's really remarkable. Yeah. This one image of a pineapple. Right. It, it started with this young man, Nizam, who was an Afghan commando. He was Afghan special forces and even went to our Green Beret course at Fort Bragg. He's, you know, he is a U.S. trained Green Beret. One of the most amazing young men I ever met. I met him in 2010 when we were working in these villages, and he was maybe 18 at the time. He, his father was killed by the, Muja, uh, by the Soviets. He was a Mujahideen fighter when the Soviets were in the country. His mother was sold into slavery. Nizam slept. His stepfather wouldn't let him in the house. He slept in a barn until he was 11. And everyone in his family referred to him as the backpack man because his home was in his backpack. He ran away, ran away at 11. Joined the army at 17, put on women's high heel shoes so he could pass the height standard wow. when, when the U.S. invaded and the army stood up. And, you know, once he became an Afghan commando, when I was working with him in 2010, he was actually shot through the face because he turned around to warn his U.S. counterparts of an ambush and was back in the fight two weeks later. That's the kind of guy he is, right? I mean, just the most astounding human being. Everybody loved Nizam. And then in 2021, the summer, he contacted me and said, brother... My visa has not come through. They're sending the Taliban are sending me texts. They know where I am. Uh, I'm not going to make it. 
if, if, if I don't get out of here. And, and that's when I knew that we had to do something to help him. So a t- I called a bunch of buddies, not a bunch, maybe four or five Green Berets that I'd worked with. And we formed a little team to try to be his eyes and ears. We didn't go over. We did it remotely on our cell phones. And we just served his eyes and ears to move him through and get him to the gate. And when we got him right to the gate, the, the Marines w- wouldn't let him in because he didn't have any paperwork. Right, so he's four feet from the Marines, the crowd, crowd of thousands uh, on 19 August, and he sneaks in through the first gate behind a family with green cards, and he texted me. He's like, "Brother, they're getting ready to toss me out because they figured out I'm not with his family." So we're kind of panicking, and so I, there, we had one phone number to a diplomat, then we called this guy, and we were like, "Hey." We explained Nizam, who he was, what he had done, how he was a U.S. Green Beret, he was being hunted. He's four feet from your perimeter right now. This diplomat paused, and he goes, you know, I used to be a Green Beret before I was a diplomat. we got to take care of our own. Tell your buddy to say pineapple as loud as he can. So we're screaming into the phones, like, say pineapple. And he's such a prim and proper guy, he doesn't like to make a scene. So he wouldn't do that. He walks over to this bearded special operator sitting at the gate, and he goes, sir, I am the pineapple. Wow. And uh, the guy goes, you're the pineapple? He said, yes, I'm the pineapple. He goes, all right, you walk right down this row, and we'll process you in. So that is how Task Force Pineapple or Operation Pineapple Express got started. Right. And then there was the, an image of a pineapple on a cell phone. To- right. So what happened then was um, the phone just, just started blowing up. You know, I thought we were done, but it turns out there were dozens and dozens of former special operators, active duty members who were doing the exact same thing with their friend. Because okay. what happened was when everything fell apart and the government didn't answer the phone, they called the guys they worked with, Yeah, you know, which is what you and I would do. Right. And they're looking for help any way we can. So they had heard that we got Nizam out and, and I looked at Monty and I was like, and she goes, I know we just go do it, you oh. know? And, and so we opened the signal room up on our chat room and guys started coming in and we started building, scaling what we had just done. So basically what we ended up doing was using an open sewage canal a four-foot hole in the fence. We connected with some guys from the 82nd Airborne. And uh, the guy that designed this was a Syracuse school teacher who used to be a Green Beret, whose hero was Harriet Tubman. And he came up with this idea for an underground railroad. So the underground railroad was this sewage canal that if you dropped down in it at night, the Taliban would not go in there. Mm. It was too nasty. And then you wade through that canal with your family. And when you get to a certain spot where the hole in the fence was, the 82nd guys would have a green chem light on and you would show them the picture of the pineapple. They, we would have sent information on the families ahead of time. They right. would check that information against the family and they would pull them through the hole in the fence, transport them across the airfield and put them on an airplane. This is a Hollywood script. <laughs> it is. And when you open the book, you've got like... Tell me what this is, the map. Here. Yeah, so we did. We wanted to do, you know, the, it moves fast. When you read this book, it, if you've seen the remake of Dunkirk, mm-hmm. you know, like it moves like that. And we wanted it to be that way. I wrote it in the third person. I didn't write it in the first person. I didn't want it to be, oh, well, here's what I did or here's what I was thinking. It's like, no, the protagonists in this are the Afghans. Wow. And then the, the secondary protagonists are these volunteer veterans who, who guided them, right, from their breakfast tables and their basements. So that map reflects uh, not just Kabul International Airport and Kabul, but it also reflects the canal. Uh, it reflects the uh, the shack where the 82nd Airborne slept out under the engines of the running C-17s, the hole in the fence. So you can reference that map as you read. 
You need to because yeah. it moves quick. And there's also a character list in there right after that where mm. you get to meet all of the characters and you can flip back as you're reading because some chapters will be like one paragraph. But it's, it's a character and you need to go back. And go, OK, who was that? And then uh-huh. and then so I want the I want it to be as immersive as possible for the reader. Mm-hmm. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. What's Nizam up to right now? So Nizam, when, when, when we learned that he was on borrowed time, I, I really felt like, cause he said to me, he said, sir, you know, he goes, I'm not afraid to die. You know, I've been shot multiple times. I've been wounded multiple times. He goes, what I'm afraid of is dying alone. Cause everybody's gone. Our president's gone. Our generals are gone, you know, and I'm just, I'm by myself. And, and I said, look, you're not going to die alone. Um, you're not going to die at all. And at that point, I thought I was talking to a dead man walking. I mean, really, um, the only thing that was going through my mind was you just got to keep his morale up any way you can. I had no plan. I had no idea what we were going to do. But what I promised him was, I said, listen, I promise you this. If you'll just stay alive, (laughs) we're going to get you out and you're going to come to Riverview, Florida, and you're going to be my neighbor and we're going to live together and no one's ever going to hunt you again. Like your, your family will be safe. And I said, well, you do that. And he said, okay, he kind of laughed. He thought I was crazy, I think. Um, but he lives in Riverview, Florida, a couple oh. of miles from me now. He's my neighbor and um, he, uh, he's got his GED. He's got his driver's license. His kids are in school. Um, it's, um, it's a miracle, really. My goodness. Yeah. I, and people don't think about that, the other side of it. You bring these... Right allies home and then what happens after that it's so tough for them it's so tough for them i mean you think about it like if you had to if you had to let's say you were a military family right and your husband or your wife uh fought in the afghan army for year after year after year you have uh your home that you you where you raise your kids and then all of a sudden literally within 24 hours everything collapses your husband comes running in and says we have 5 minutes grab everything you can in a backpack grab the children's medicines and let's go we have to go because what happened was when the taliban ran into kabul they overran the ministry of defense within hours and they had all of the home records the home addresses of the commandos the special forces well get where do you think the first place they went yeah. was all of the home addresses of the people who had been hunting them mm-hmm. for 20 years and so they had to leave their homes in the middle of the night and go to this airfield where there were tens of thousands of people people were being trampled there was no food there was no water and then you know the ones who got out their children and their wives were beaten at Taliban checkpoints right in front of them we were on the phones with them and you know they would say scott they're beating my wife right now i can't go on and i have to say to them no you have to keep going i know this sucks but if you don't keep going you are never getting out of here mm-hmm. and the trauma that they endured through that 96 hour period and then to come to a country that you've never been to before. You don't speak the language. You know, you were an Afghan sergeant major, and now you're working at a car wash, if you're lucky, living in a Motel 6. I mean, it it is a massive resettlement issue, and we are trying the best we can to help, but we're, we're way out over our skis, if, if I'm being candid. Yeah. How, are you still, to this day, trying to help people come over? For sure. For sure. But the reality is there's tens of thousands of Afghan special operators. There's probably close to 100,000 people who, by our definition of a promise made, are eligible and should should have got out. 
there's no way. There's no way that we're going to get that number of people out with the way the administration has handled this. And frankly, just as a national collective, it you know, the, the, the emphasis just isn't there. So we're going to keep trying to get the most at risk out and then try to find ways to help those who stay start to orient on a resistance, because that's ultimately what it's going to come down to is they're going to have to take their country back. So we've been we were over there for 20 years and yeah. then the withdrawal. And when I talked to you, you could still feel I could feel the anger about how this was, you know, done. Yeah. Yeah. I feel it because. You know, I left the army in 2013, Janice. I left the army because I came back from my third tour in Afghanistan. We were working with Afghan villagers. It was kind of a modern day Magnificent Seven where we were really doing the special forces mission big time. What we should have been doing early on, but we didn't. But we were. And then we 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 were having a lot of success. Afghan villagers were standing up on their own. This is where I met Nizam. And then we just stopped. We 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 bailed on that program and we went back to just kind of living behind the, the big perimeter walls and we let those people be hunted and killed. And to me, it was a foreshadowing of what was coming. And so I retired. I, I was selected for a battalion command. I, I w- my career was going well, but I just couldn't be part of the strategy in Afghanistan. And I couldn't be part of the careerism where senior officers weren't making a stand on decisions that were costing people their lives. And frankly, our, our, our junior officers and, and, and NCOs were looking at going, this is wrong. For example, like we teach... Green Berets, you you never, ever leave a partner on the battlefield. Your partner, your ally, that's who actually carries the load. You know, everything about a Green Beret is by, with, and through indigenous culture. So if you get a habit of abandoning your partners, then they won't fight. They won't do what the nation, our nation needs them to do. And so when, where I had such a problem with the way this went down was we asked our active duty soldiers and our veterans to accept an outcome that ran counter to everything that we had been held accountable to for 20 years of our youth to abandon people who we trained and who we're here because they, they fought for us. And Azam took a bullet for green berets and, and you're going to ask us to just not answer the phone. And when I, Janice, when I talk to the sergeants right now, you know, I talked to an iconic fifth group green beret sergeant who, loves special forces. And he said to me through tears, his, one of his Afghans had just been murdered who he was trying to keep alive. And he said to me through tears, he said, if I'd known on 9-12-2001 what I know now about how our government would treat the Afghan people, I would have never joined special forces. Wow. And, and he did six tours. And it's not one administration either. It's not. And I try to say that as much as I can. Like this... Yes, the Biden administration owns this. Let's be super clear. But it was the Trump administration's plan. You know, it was the Doha plan with the Trump administration that that was executed. And frankly, I served under multiple administrations, uh, Democrat and Republican. And as a Green Beret on the ground, I found them all to be equally underwhelming in terms of being their leadership being worthy of what our sergeants and officers and enlisted sacrificed on the ground it was not worthy of their of their sacrifice and i really we have a leadership crisis in this country that goes way beyond party yeah and 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 if you even look at how the partisanship has affected the afghan situation 
Um, it's been both sides of the aisle, in my opinion, that have affected this. And it's the it's our soldiers, it's our warriors, our Gold Star families, and the Afghans who are paying the price. And ultimately could be the country based on how national security has been affected by this. What would you have done? Well, first of all, I, I would have... I would have continued to, to, to let Afghans lead. You know, there's this narrative that the Afghans didn't fight. There were over 60,000 killed in action within the Afghan National Army and police force just over the last few years. 60,000. I mean, that's more than we lost in Vietnam. And the Afghan special operators endured the bulk of that. Probably 98% of the fighting were these maybe 20,000 warriors. And they were doing a really good job. They had the ability to um, to keep the Taliban on their heels, ISIS on their heels. We trained these units. It, Janice, if you watched them operate, you would think they were Rangers or Delta Force, like they were that good. But they needed like sur- uh, surgical strike capability, helicopters, drones, um, medical evacuation choppers. They required all those things to strike at that level. We took all of that away in June with no warning. We took all the contractors pulled them out of the country. So their entire ability to have a decisive advantage over the enemy was removed. So I never would have done that. Right. And I would have I would have maintained a, a residual counterterrorism force of like Delta operators, maybe a squadron of them, because those guys, along with the commandos, they could definitely keep Al-Qaeda and ISIS on their heels. And I would have kept a handful of Green Berets in the country to continue building and training capacity not just with the Afghan special ops, but also the villagers, the local areas. I think that would have been enough. I don't think you would have needed this 100,000-person footprint, probably less than 10,000 troops. But here's what I would leave your listeners with, is if we're going to deal with terrorism, and it's going to come back, Al-Qaeda is reconstituting right now, we've got to find a way as a nation to be okay with having a couple of thousand special operators in these rough places for 50 to 75 years at a time. Mm. Because if we don't do that, we can't build the trust and the capacity that local assets need to stand on their own. Mm-hmm. And somehow we got to get that across. What's the forecast there in your mind? What's going to happen in 10, 20 years? Ooh. So I'm talking to a lot of people in Afghanistan. I have really good sources in Afghanistan, like a lot of ex-special operators. I have people that I still talk to. And I can tell you there's a couple of things that I think. Uh, one, I'm optimistic in the sense that I don't believe we should count out the Afghan people. Mm. You know, uh, I was just talking to Lieutenant General Sami Sadat, who's an Afghan special operator. Uh, he was the head of the Afghan Special Operations Force. He was the last general when Kabul fell. I should definitely introduce you to him. Okay. Um, amazing guy. He's in Turkey right now. He's planning to go back. He's planning to go back and take the commandos and the special forces and take the country back. And his premise, and I agree with it, is that for the 20 years that our warriors and our NATO partners operated in that country, we held space. We held space for rel- for a relative version of democracy to occur. We held space for 8 million young boys and girls to go to school. We held space for women like Hasina Safi in the book to hold a, a minister of women's affairs position, you know, to, 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 to serve at the highest level. And honestly, I think now that this draconian rule of the Taliban has reemerged, Al-Qaeda is reemerging, and ISIS, and it's so brutal over there, I don't think people are good with it. I think the Afghan people are, are, are tiring of it very quickly, and I think they're going to reassert themselves in some form of resistance. And it'll be hard for them without an external sponsor like we're doing with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. 
they're going to need help from the outside. It doesn't mean we should have boots on the ground. They don't want boots on the ground. But I do think just moral support, knowing that we're with them, financial support, material support, because the Taliban is a terror regime. They are not a recognized government. Mm -hmm. So we should be supporting the resistance that's already starting to happen. That's my prediction on that. Here's the other thing that I would just say, why Afghanistan matters, why I think this book matters, why I think people should care, is that al-Qaeda, according to my sources, is reconstituting. Zawahiri, who we killed with the drone strike, he's already been replaced. You have foreign fighters right now from the Philippines, uh, other areas of Southeast Asia, China, and North Africa openly training in the very Afghan army bases in Kandahar and Helmand where we operated in the open. And they have made it very clear that they have a relationship with the Taliban and that they have geopolitical aspirations for striking again. And we're sitting in the city where it all started. And does anybody doubt that ISIS and al-Qaeda don't have global aspirations to hit us again. Yeah. And now they have an unfettered safe haven and a supporting Taliban government to allow them to train, refit, and project. So to me, it is like I can see the next 9-11 commission testimony writing itself right now. If we don't wake up and um, look at what the options are to counter that. And it is, I think, these local forces who these veterans are trying to hold intact. We're trying to hand it back over to the government, our government, and say, please, we've, been, we've kept them alive. We've got them through the winter. They're still intact. Please take this manifest and take care of these folks, take care of their families, and they will stand up. I remember you telling me that you've been to the abyss. It was one of the moments where I was like, mm. oh, I do remember you saying that. Yeah. And tell me what that is for you. Um, when I left the army, you know, I told you that I, I just, I was not good with where things were going. It was not, it was not the special forces that I had joined. And I felt like I was at a point in my life where I had to decide if I was going to, you know, kind of be run the bureaucratic route of the career army officer or whether I was going to, you know, try to do more from the outside. And so when I left, I had a great plan. Monty and I uh, were, were still happily married. Our kids were in high school, had a job. And um, when I got out, though, Janice, like 18 months after I separated, I, my life was was really rough. It, it had gotten really dark. Um, on the outside, everything looked great. I had a good job, good career. But on the inside, I'd lost my purpose. I'd lost my passion. Uh, you know, I was walking around the house. I wouldn't shower for days. I, you know, wouldn't get dressed. My temper was, my mood swings were terrible. My, my, my sons, if I would walk in a room, they were still in high school and junior high. I'd walk in the room and they would just get up and leave because they didn't know what they were going to get. Mm. You know, and, and Monty was doing everything she could to just keep me, you know, in between the rails. But I just, I was, I, I was falling apart. And at, at one point, I just decided that I was not relevant anymore, you know, and I found myself standing in my closet holding a forty five pistol. And um, it was it was one of the uh, and I didn't tell Monty until years later. You know, I lost a friend to suicide, another friend, a sixth friend to suicide. And, and I was going to do a TED talk. And I and I told Monty, I, I want to talk about this on my TED talk. And, and she said, talk about what? And I said, I have to, you know, I have to tell you. And I told her, and, and I, I'd never told my sons, you know, and uh, it was the most just embarrassing, No, uh, just at the time, you know, it was just so hard to talk about. 
But what I found was that in that darkest moment, you know, was that though that that scar, that internal scar that I had ended up being my greatest strength. Mm. You know, it ended up being that struggle ended up being something that I could parlay to other veterans. It was why Monty and I formed our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey. And, and basically, I learned how to use storytelling as a way to heal oneself and as a way to bridge that civil military gap and take those scars and be generous with them. We call it the generosity of scars, you know, taking our struggles and, and using narrative to tell the stories to people who are hurting and so that they can see a, a direction for their life. So the abyss was very real, uh, but it, it was a necessary abyss to show me a pathway beyond being a Green Beret where I found purpose again. Does it creep up on you, that kind of darkness? Does it come sort of day by day? Tell me what the warning signs would be right. for someone or their spouse. Yeah, looking back on it now, it was very incremental. It was very insidious. I believe it is directly tied, because we're meaning-seeking creatures, it was directly tied to the absence of meaning. Oh, wow. You know, I believe, and, and this is whether you're a veteran or not, I believe look, there's so much change and turmoil in our world today that as humans, we, we're the only mammals on the planet that seek meaning in what we do. And we assign meaning to what we do. So, for example, for me, I was going from being at the top of my game as a Green Beret, you know, literally driving strategy in a country where when I talked, General Petraeus would listen to me if I had something to say. Mm -hmm. To walking around my house in flip flops and a four day beard, you know, wondering what what the hell am I even doing here? And so it is incremental. But I believe when we start to lose connection to our purpose that is the first really dangerous place. If we can continue to look for meaning in what we do, right? I think, I think it, we can have hard days, but we're okay. But when I started to lose the connection to my purpose and my meaning, and then the other thing was I wasn't getting any help for the post-traumatic stress, the survivor's guilt that had built up for years and years and years. You know, I, I had learned how to push it down and just keep going. And that all just came home to roost as my resilience eroded. And, it, and, and th I mean, I just, grace of God, honestly, that I didn't go through with it. I came very close. What happened that you didn't go through? My son came home from school unexpectedly. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Yeah, that was the only reason, you know. And, um, and it was not the last time that I found myself kind of peering over the abyss, but not to that level. I never got that close again. But the other thing that kind of scared me with um, Afghanistan, and, and this, this is where a lot of our veterans are right now, I think, I got kind of close to that again, not in the like self-harm kind of way, but I was really spiraling down with when everything collapsed, I was asking myself, what's the point? Friends lost, you know, and, and what was it all for? It gave my youth away, like, you know, missed all of these things with my kids. And I started to spiral and Monty saw it. You know, she's been the one um, that's like picked me up off the floor more times than I can count. But she saw it and she got my buddies to intervene. And uh, I thought I was going to a mastermind thing, like at a retreat. And my buddies were like, okay, you're done uh, with the ground game in Afghanistan. Here's what you're going to focus on. You know, you're going to divest the ground game. You're going to give it to these young guys because you're too old for this crap, you know. And they, they pulled me out to a level and they got me focused on the book. Yeah. They were like, look, you're a storyteller. You don't need to be trying to 
physically evacuate any more Afghans. You can't do it, and you're going to go back to that closet, dude. And so I was so grateful for that intervention because what it allowed me to do was get back to my purpose. Like, I know I can tell the story. I know I can tell the stories of our Afghan brothers and sisters. I know I can tell the stories of our veterans. But I have to tell you, Janice, so many of our veterans right now are hurting. Uh, Even if you don't agree with Afghanistan, I'll just share a few numbers with you. 73% of veterans feel betrayed by what happened. 73%. 67% feel humiliated by what happened. The VA hotline has seen an 81% spike in mental health calls since August of 2021. Um, The U.S. military has dropped in trust in the country from 71% to 56%. The recruiting and retention are completely in the toilet. And the final number that really worries me is we had um, people talk about 22 a day. Let me give it another way. 30,177 suicides with just our active duty and post 9-11 veterans. That's not even counting Vietnam. Compared to 7,000 plus killed in action post 9-11. Now, that, I'm not minimizing the 7,000 number, but 30,000-plus suicides. Those are combat fatalities for the most part. Those are – you could walk it all the way back to the battlefield. Most of those suicides were in the last three years. If you have 73% of the population feeling betrayed, 67% feeling humiliated, what's that going to look like mental health-wise with this moral injury over the next couple of years if we keep turning the page on this? What do we do? We've got to really, really wake up to this moral injury in our veteran community. I, I, I really believe we're on the front end of a massive storm, and that's why I'm so vocal about this. Uh, I think that as a society, one, our leaders, we need to demand that our leaders, both sides of the aisle, acknowledge where our veterans are right now. We need our general officers and admirals, past and present, to come out of the shadows into the public space and start talking about this, right? They need to start talking about this. They need to demand that Congress hold open public hearings on Afghanistan because this moral injury is so significant that most of our veterans, and I've talked to dozens of them in my interviews, and these are stellar individuals, they feel like the government, to include their military senior officers, there's a complete loss of trust, and that everything they were taught and held to standard for has been violated, and they don't trust the leadership, and they and and so now they're trying to carry this responsibility for keeping these Afghans alive. They're asking themselves what it was for, um, and until the leadership addresses this problem with them, and acknowledges this problem, and then starts to address the systemic issues of it, we've abandoned our partners, the the Montagnards in Vietnam, the Kurds in Syria, the Iraqi police and military, and now the Afghan army and police. Four straight conflicts where wholesale abandonment has occurred. And we need to, we need assurances from our leadership that that's heard and that we're not going to continue doing that because that's where your recruiting and retention problems are coming from. That's where your national trust problems coming from. It has nothing to do with partisans, partisan politics. It has to do with the trust between the leaders and the led. Yeah. And that's what I, and I think that's where citizens can, can demand that we take care of this fragile population. I mean, the, the, Janice, the people in this book, my God, they've been through so much. 
so much. Will Lyles, one of the guys in this book, is a double amputee. And he jumped into the fray to save the interpreter who saved his life on the battlefield. And he shouldn't be the one keeping him alive. I mean, how can we ask Will to do that? We've asked enough, you know, but he's going to keep going. Um, so I know I've rambled on this, but I just I feel like we really need our citizenry to stand up for the veterans who stood up for them for 20 years because they're going to just keep receding into the background and we're going to lose this beautiful moral compass that has always defined our nation if we don't take care of them right now. And it's just simple as giving them a purpose to wake up in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And and I think addressing, well, this issue has to be addressed. It ha- it, the way that this went down where... Yes, the abandonment was terrible, but to just turn the page. I had uh, Zach, the, one of the conductors in the, in, the, in the book, he told me, he said, I think the anniversary is harder on me than the actual collapse. And he said, I had to go to the VA for emergency mental health. He said, I've never done that. But on the day of 15 August this year, because it just came crashing down on me that nothing's changed. A year later, nothing's changed except more of my friends have been assassinated in front of their families. And the government has not even acknowledged what these volunteers have done, how they've checked, you know, they've cashed in their checking accounts, their pensions to keep safe houses and food drops going. Perry Blackburn, a retired lieutenant colonel, he, he, he lost his job, but yet he's still raising money uh, to go to, to send food drops over there. And I just think we, we need to acknowledge the, the level of, of, of contribution that was done by our veterans and active duty, we need to look at this systemic problem of abandonment and have hearings that really get at the matter. And we may people may need to lose their jobs over this. There, there needs to be some accountability on this where we walk it back and we go, okay, and at a minimum, there need to be measures put in place that our veterans can have assurances that our children, like my son who's in the Army right now, won't face this on his watch. What is that like having a son that's serving? It's I don't talk about it a lot um, for him. Yeah. Um, but it's deeply humbling. He's a far better officer than I ever was. Um, he's an amazing young man. He is a great leader. And it's probably the thing that keeps me up most at night because he's my son. And Monty, actually, my wife is really much better at it than me because she's had to see the, the people she loved go to war before. I've never done that. You know, I actually wrote a play about it called Last Out. And the whole premise of the play is my character, Danny Patton. He's a Green Beret sergeant. The whole play is about him coming to terms with his son going to fight the war that he couldn't finish, you know. Um, but yeah, my son was three when the towers fell and now he's an army officer to give you an idea of how long this war is and how much it affects our families, our military families. Does he tell you that seeing his dad do this, you know, inspired him? Yeah, he does. And and I you know, I don't I I don't look for that obviously, but he he does. He's been a big a big supporter. All three of my sons have. And you know, one of the reasons people ask me they're like, "Why did you get involved with this when you had such a rough transition?" Why did you get back into it? And I didn't want to. If I'm being honest, I didn't want to get involved in any of this again. I walked away from the Army for a reason um, because I just didn't want to be a part of that world anymore. I had a different plan for my life. And the, the real reason, and Monty and I talked about it, was because I'm like, our sons are watching us right now. You know, our three sons who we raised to be good citizens, to be good protectors, to do the right thing when no one's looking, they are looking at me right now. Wondering what I'm going to do. 
you know, and um, that's the only metric that matters to me right now is, is what I do in this moment with my sons watching me. And they've all been so supportive. And even our youngest, Braden, you know, he, he was about to go to college. I mean, like the week it happened, he was leaving for college and I had made him promises that I would be there for that. I'd missed the other two really. And uh, I missed every bit of it. Yeah. I missed every bit of it for working this problem. And, but he was like, no, it's good, dad. You know, you got to, you got to do this. So we've been very, the military family is an amazing national treasure. They really are. The military family, their, their stories are epic <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Monty is in the studio with us. Does she do, inter- do you ever do interviews? <laughs> She's looking at me yeah, like, sure. no, because I, I am interested in the, in the spouse in this, like how she deals with something like this. You don't yeah. want to get on, on the microphone. I know this is kind of you like, sh- I'm you surprising you. Please, you please okay. come on in. It's right there. I mean, listen, Scott has been looking at you throughout the interview and you are his rock. So I have to talk to you. You're right here. How, how do you deal with all of it? Like when he was in the military yeah, or just starting now? Off with, or? Well, let's start off with, you know, seeing what he's doing today. You know, he's being interviewed by about this incredible story that he w- led. Um, I mean, there must be, you know, you're proud of him. But you've also been in those very, you know, dark moments when you're trying to help him, too. So, you know, as a wife, I mean... Do you look back when you're making those vows and you say, yeah, that's what I signed up for? Absolutely. Because, I mean, we knew, and that's something we've always said, is that we knew what we were signing on for. The kids didn't. And that's why my focus was always on him going and doing what he loved and what he was good at and me just trying to take care of the kids and make sure they don't want for anything or need or for whatever they want to do just because it's just me that's doing it. Mm-hmm. Like their dad's gone and we, I don't have, you know, I can't take you here to go do two sports because it's just me. I wanted to make sure. So obviously that keeps you really busy when you're doing that. So I just, I just kept myself busy while he went off and did what he loved to do because it was his passion and I just wanted to support him. And when did you all meet? When did you meet? We met when I was in the uh, infantry officer advance course in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. I was in Fort Benning and she was in Atlanta and, uh, yeah, we met in Buckhead <laughs> at a bar <laughs> in true Special Forces fashion. I love it. And how long have you been married for? I'll be 27 years in November, oh. Veterans Day. Veterans Day. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the entire career, you know, our marriage has spanned not just Special Forces, but but uh, the entire war, mm-hmm. the entire war almost, you know, uh, either we either I was in it or, you know, my son was serving, so... As a wife, when you see those dark times when he was talking about, you know, um, walking around and slippers and, and not himself, did you know early on that something was going on? And how did you, you know, deal with it? Well, it's I did know because I know him so well. And that's the hardest thing is you don't know how to deal with it, because I know there's so much that he had seen and done and just everything with Afghanistan a lot that I don't know so you really don't know to what extent like I had no idea it had gotten to that point until he told me and uh, so it you know it's really hard to know what to do other than just try to be there any way you can and it's and sometimes you don't know how to be there but just is it your presence is it talking is it 
how how can you be there? So it's it was hard. It was really hard. And that's that's really one of the reasons that when, when we talked about it years later and we founded the, the Hero's Journey, one of the biggest reasons that we did that was so that we had to learn how to communicate about the mental health. You know, and you think you know your spouse, you think you know your kid, whatever, but you really, you know, or you think you know your buddy who you served in combat with, but you really don't know what's going on behind that mask. You know, and, and so we had to learn how to use, and we used storytelling narrative as a way to communicate that, which is what societies have used for thousands of years. But even just helping families talk to, you know, dads talking to their kids about post-traumatic stress, you know, through storytelling. And uh, it, 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 it opened up a lot of opportunities for us to try to help because families, military families in particular, don't have the resources they need to navigate this. And I, I think in a lot of ways when he wrote the play Last Out and we started really talking a lot about that and kind of working the script. And when I realized he was serious, he was actually going to <laughs> like write the a play. Midlife crisis. He was actually going to act in a play. I was like, <laughs> OK, he's serious. So let's have an actual real conversation about it. And I think that's when a lot came to light for both of us yeah. that we had not really thought about, because I think when he's gone or was gone those years that he did those deployments and I'm back home. I'm just kind of doing my thing. He's doing his thing. Therefore, when he comes home, he's not talking about what went on. I'm not talking about what went on because we're ready to just be together and keep moving forward. So there's a lot that wasn't discussed, not because we didn't want, but it's just let's let's move on now. You're home. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. And so as things were getting written with the play, things would come up that he would write in the play about me back home. And it's like. Uh uh-uh, uh, that's not how it was. And I would talk about it and he would talk about it. And it's been really cool because when he would do the the performances, we would have friends and people we didn't know in the audience and they all had a different perspective from it. And a lot of times it was a married couple that are like, you know what, we're gonna be having a completely different conversation in the car on the way home. Yeah. Because it would have opened up things for them to discuss about that like either she didn't know about him or he didn't know about her during the times and yeah. so it was Yeah. Did you have good feedback on that? Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. How do people watch that? Well, so they right now it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. It's on Apple TV, Google TV. Uh, It's if you go to scottman.com there, like there's a link there. But um, you can watch. What we did was when we toured 16 cities with this play, including New York, all veteran cast, all veterans in the support trip. We put 28,000 miles on a U-Haul. I mean, it was the ultimate midlife crisis. Yeah. Did you always knew know you had that in you to no, do something like this? No, Monty? no, I certainly didn't. No, but we, you know, I learned to act at fifty. I would sneak up to New York twice a month and study acting up here. But it really, it was a, it's an electric show. It really, it follows this one Green Beret sergeant through the entire war and his family, and it is. I mean, it's a, it's not an after school special. Like the actors are really tight. But uh, COVID shut it down, and so we decided to do what Hamilton did with it, and um, we turned it into a film. We raised the money ourselves. We turned it into a film. It's like a two-hour, 20-minute film. It's on Amazon Prime called Last Out, Elegy okay. of a Green Beret. Uh, but yeah, it tells the story of Afghanistan and modern war. If you watch that film, you will walk away going, wow. Like you will know because everybody on the stage lived it. Wow. Uh, and we're getting ready to bring it back live again on tour I, i'll tell you about that down the road but there's a pretty exciting uh development on that but but uh yeah we've been at this for like six years now 
I love that everywhere you go, though, Monty is there. That, Absolutely. That's just for me. I, I, my heart is warmed by that. You know, yeah. every time you've come to Fox to do an interview, there's Monty. And yep. I just think, oh, I could, it brings tears to my eyes because you are such a supportive wife in so many ways. And just, yeah. ev- you know, being there, you know, says so much even if you don't say anything do you know what i i mean i do i think we were separated so much with the military and that's something we had always said that when he retired we really hoped that we would be able to do something together yeah. and so and it's and it's worked out the timing has really worked out good because we're empty nesters now and so now we're yes. able just to come and go and do however <laughs> we want to and and travel together so it's been it's been really good yeah you must be so proud i am very you can't even put it into words. Right? Maybe cry. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to military families? What, you know, obviously, I, my husband's a fireman. It's a different kind mm. of job, but there are similarities Absolutely. there. Absolutely. He doesn't tell me about what happened on 9 11 when he lost 12 of his guys in the firehouse. You right. know, I don't know about the days and months where he went down to ground zero and dug for remains. He doesn't right. tell me that. But it's there. It's always there. So how do you say I'm? You can talk to me even twenty years later. I think it's just it is just communication. We've we've always communicated everything. That's just been a big something that we've always talked about from the very beginning is communication and our kids teaching our kids to communicate. You know, you just you have to do it. And I think. If you are used to communicating when you do get into trying times like that, it helps you to be able to communicate that much more. I don't know if that makes sense yeah, or not, it does. but that's kind of that's just been a big something for us. And Monty always made it clear to me as, as, as time has worn on, you know, she's made it clear that in, even in the moments when it's not a crisis moment. But just when we're having conversations, she'll mm-hmm. say something like, well, you know, you can talk about that anytime you want. Yeah. Um, and just kind of creating that psychological safety to do that. Um but then the other thing, too, that I have to say, at least from my perspective, that she's always done is she's given me the space to talk to other people about it, counselors, whatever I needed to do. But um, what she always insisted on was um, you need to talk to somebody. Yes. You know, if it's not me, fine. But you need to talk to someone who can help you. And and that's where she was always and is my, just my rock on that is because, like, she she doesn't let that go untended. Good. I do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to. And there's no shame in it. No. At all. It's an outlet. You have to get it out. Yes. And not only that, I I believe that, you know, and again, I call it the generosity of scars is, is repurposing our struggles into the service of other people. I believe our trauma, honest to God, in this time that we live in, Janice, it's such a challenging time where distraction and disengagement and distrust is so high. And people are literally acting tribal with each other. The leaders who we actually follow are the ones who've been scuffed up mm-hmm. are the ones who are able to take their stories of trauma and put them to work in the service of other people. And when they tell their stories, what happens is all of a sudden it, it's a hard thing to do. But the people in the room feel safer because they're like, oh, yeah, she's been through what I've been through. Like she's been scuffed up. She gets it. Mm-hmm. She's relatable. And we're looking for leaders like that. I frankly think that's why Pineapple did what it did. We had no clue what we were doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. I wake up every day. I look at money. I'm like, I am so out over my skis. And she's like, yeah, that's new. <laughs> you know? But if you don't try. It, it, and, and that's what I think is when Americans saw this 
when they watched what was happening and no one was picking up the phone. And then all of a sudden you have these veterans come in who are picking up the phone and they're trying to do something, it, it, even if it's just moving a few people through a hole in the fence. Um, as Americans, we look at that and we go, that's leadership. Mm. That's that's I'm, I'm, I'm following that. And. I don't know. I, I, I believe that like today for all of us, as we look at what's going on in our arena, you know, there's some version of that happening where it's nobody's picking up the phone. Nobody's coming. OK, cool. What's your Pineapple Express? Wow. You know what? Are, you know, and it's the trauma and the struggle and the scars where the real opportunity for generosity exists, mm. you know, and, and uh, if we can just not only make peace with it, but turn it into our own story. Yeah. You give me hope. You really do. Well, thanks. Yeah, that, that's what we need. That's what we need. You know, I, I've asked you before about becoming a politician. <laughs> Monty is like, no. no. I, I, I really believe I'm led. I feel led to be a the country is so divided right now politically. Yeah, that um, I believe my I'm being led as a storyteller, um, as a leader to, to try to bridge those gaps. And so the rest of my life where I'm going to focus if, if, uh, if I can do it is like with, I call it rooftop leadership, but is, is worrying less about the issues for me and, and more about helping people tr- how they treat each other when they talk about the issues, because that's, what's going to take us out as a country. It's not the issues in my assessment. It's how we treat each other when we deal with the issues. Mm-hmm. Are we going to treat each other with respect and discourse that is representative of a civil society and a democracy? Or are we going to turn into shadow tribalism and bash each other with axe handles over the issue? Right. It's how we treat each other. And so I'm going to try to parlay my special forces skills on rapport and interpersonal connection and storytelling to help other leaders, political leaders, get out of their own, take the partisan blinders off and, and really connect across divides because that's what people are hungry for. I really believe that. And I think that's where I can play my part. And I just think of the story of you as a Green Beret, you know, meeting Nizam. Yeah. And starting that relationship. All those years ago. And, and it really, it really comes down to that. I think in life, like the more complex things get, the tougher things get. Um, I mean, it's like you, you're great at connections. You're great at relationships. That's what people follow. That's what people need. That's what they're starving for is just leaders who value relationships, social capital, interpersonal connection. It's so lacking these days. If we lose that. We're done. We are. And so I thank you, Monty (laughs) and Scott. Thank Thank you you for giving us hope today. Thank you for giving us a voice. And listen, Operation Pineapple Express Everyone needs to read this. They also need to watch your play. Uh, But, you know, this is history, and it's not being covered, and we need to pay attention. We do. We really do. Thank you Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining me today, and thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in to the Janice Dean Podcast. If you have someone you want to nominate for the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.